Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Scale, our new series on the do's and don'ts for rapidly scaling startups. This week, we were lucky enough to sit down with Gene DeWitt, Head of Revenue and Growth at Stripe. Gene arrived at Stripe over three years ago as one of their first sales leaders, at a time when Stripe had actually very little formal sales functions and relied heavily on a high-velocity, self-serve sales model. Since then, Gene has helped formalize the sales team at Stripe, helping them achieve an incredible $25 billion valuation. Gene joined the podcast to talk to my colleague Courtney about Stripe's unique approach to sales, how their teams are structured, and when it's time to move from inbound to outbound. If you want to hear more episodes from our Scale series, you'll find them on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. But now, let's jump over to the conversation. Gene, welcome to Inside Intercom. You've had an incredibly impressive career in sales from Google to Dialpad and now Stripe. Just to set the scene for our listeners, could you give us a quick rundown of your career to date and how you ended up at Stripe? Um, Sure, absolutely. So uh, I joined Google straight out of college, was fortunate enough to join two months after Gmail launched and uh, was on the Gmail team and joined in the user ops organization. So back in 2004, if you were writing Google to ask how you could get a $200 eBay invite, I was probably the person to answer that question and ended up managing that team. Uh, So managed the Gmail team, the team that helped launch Google Talk, the team that helped launch Google Voice when Google acquired that company. And then was also fortunate that at the time, Google had a great educational leave program. So took two years off to get my MBA and then came back and uh, decided to come back to what is now known as Google Cloud, although in 2010, cloud was barely a word. Um, So purposely joined that organization, wanted to be revenue facing, but also didn't want to be on ads. (laughs) I wanted to be on a startup within Google. So came in. And at the time, we had a freemium model in our SMB space, and so really took on the SMB space uh, in charge of revenue for it and made some adjustments to that strategy so that we could better develop sales function. So did that for a bit, went out and ran APAC for a year and a half, ran our team in Japan, put our India team in in place, came back and did North and Latin America. And then after 10 years at Google, you start to ask yourself, like, am I good at my job or am I good at my job at Google? (laughs) And so I've been talking to some folks who are ex-Googlers who had left and basically started Google Voice for Business, which as someone who sold G Suite, you constantly saw a need for, for voice communications as well. And they needed a CRO, and I was really interested in expanding my sales career into to larger customers as well as taking on marketing. So pursued that. Did that for a year and a half and learned a lot. Uh, it was sort of the account executive effectively who closed our first enterprise deal while at the same time building our first revenue plan, hiring out the team, et cetera. And then Claire, who's the COO of Stripe, was actually my first boss at Google when I was 22. And when she came to Stripe, she called me and said, would you like to come? And at that moment, I was only in six months into the startup. And then as time went on, I sort of realized it was not probably quite where I was going to realize all of my my career aspirations. Um, And so I called her back. And six weeks later, after a rigorous interview process, um, I was a stripe. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Um, What I'd love to talk to you today about is structuring your sales team, something that you've obviously built from the ground up at a couple places now. Um, So when you joined Stripe, it sounds like they didn't have much of a sales team. They were really leaning into their 
high velocity self-serve model. So what was sales like when you walked into Stripe and where did you start? Yeah. When I walked into Stripe, I would say it was a bunch of wicked smart people trying to do their best, but with very little process infrastructure and sort of like classic sales training. One of the things I always say about sales in the Valley is sales is a skill, just like writing code is a skill or building a financial model is a skill. And so, you know, wanted to do a lot to help train folks and, and provide those sales skills. So at the time, the only real structure we had was a set of folks focused on new business acquisition and a set of folks focused on customer success, working with our existing customers in particular, because we hadn't built out sort of larger customer support functions either. So they were sort of hybrid support AM. So when I came in, the first thing I did that I think was smart <laughs> was recognizing that I was coming to the table with a set of my own sales leadership skills, but that Stripe was a different place. First, selling payments is actually reasonably different from selling SaaS. And so I wanted to sort of figure out what aspects of my experience were going to be relevant at Stripe and where was I going to have to throw some things out and relearn. And so basically what I committed to doing was, was being an account executive for the first couple months. Um, and I spent about half of my time just closing deals on the front lines. And I think the two things that that accomplished were, one, you know, having a, a much stronger awareness of what we actually needed to do from a sales process perspective, and then also having the credibility as I wanted to affect change within the organization of having modeled the behavior that I wanted from my team. And so it's one thing for me to tell you to negotiate differently. It's another thing if you've seen me do it and saw that it was more effective and now I want to do something similar. And so I think that helped build a lot of credibility, which was important, a company like Stripe. And I think it also gave me a lot of empathy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a hard sale sometimes. So from there, really, I didn't do a lot to change the structure from the get-go. I mostly was focused on the content of selling and building out our sales process and making sure that every engagement when we were talking to somebody was, it was a good one that was going to progress a sales process. And so the first major change that we made was Stripe has been getting pulled up market. So, you know, you land Shopify as a series A company. Next thing you know, they've had a very successful IPO and you now have this massive public company on your, your platform. And we were getting at bats that we didn't expect from the likes of Amazon. And so, so my first thing where I was like, okay, it's time to make a structural change here was when I realized I had account executives taking calls with companies doing 10 million in revenue at 9 a.m. and companies doing 10 billion in revenue at 10 a.m. And I was like, yeah, I think that may not, that may not work. <laughs> so the first thing we did was to do a lot of work to try to understand where buying behaviors changed and develop some segments that were predominantly based on size. So that was our first move. And then since then, it's basically been a progressive evolution where we've added another layer of sort of specificity to what people focus on. So the next one for us was a major driver of how you evaluate Stripe is do you sell to businesses or do you sell to consumers? And what's your business model? Are you a SaaS company? Are you a marketplace? Or are you kind of an e-com retailer? So we created a, what we call categories, which are sort of a hybrid of vertical and business model, which helps account executives with pattern recognition. You tend to be talking to similar types of companies. Also, we now actually sell seven products at Stripe. And so it narrowed the number of products you had to memorize. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think a sort of a fundamental question that comes up when you are structuring your sales team is how do you organize it? Is it around products? Is it around the customer? Is it around segments? And so it sounds like you have a couple different ways of modeling it out. What was the process? Was there research behind sort of landing on that specific structure? Yeah, we've always had it so far been really around customers. And we've debated the product approach. But the reality is you're often buying multiple products for us and we may not know which one we should talk to you about until we really understood your challenges, your business model, what your growth aspirations are, you know, whether you're planning to build additional product lines, go international, et cetera. So what we've always done when we've done one of these evolutions is one, partner with our data science team. So we typically have a very rigorous analytical model behind it to understand all of our existing customers, what they have in common or what separates them. We do a lot with our Salesforce data to go through and try to understand where sales cycles are different, where we have different personas within a deal, and then have typically come up with multiple ways to set the team up. And then we rigorously debate that at one of my strategy offsites with my leadership team. So we actually, every time we do an evolution, we typically put forth, here are two to three highly credible ways that you could structure this so that we make sure whatever we pick, we're not going to need to undo. And that's sort of been one of my proudest things at Stripe is like, I really, we have not done, in my opinion, a a reorg yet within sales. It's always been this evolution of we're sort of adding on sort of the next layer of focus to get closer to kind of what the customer needs at that point. Yeah. And thinking about um, that orientation towards the customer, I know you've mentioned before that there are no inbound SDRs at Stripe. And I think that's something very unique to Stripe because normally when you're a prospect, you're writing in the first person you talk to is an SCR who qualifies you, who sort of begins to assess your needs. Why does that work particularly well to not have those SCRs at Stripe? Yeah, I think the reason we did that, and I'll caveat by saying for much larger customers, I think there's some value there. For the startup segment, which is such a key segment for Stripe, really we think velocity and getting to the crux of their issue as quickly as possible is important. And people are smart. They know when they're being qualified. Like at this point, SDRs, everyone's got them in Silicon Valley. And you don't like the experience of like, let me run you through Bant, right? So we're not going to do that. (laughs) So what we've done is like, we have very well-coordinated schedules so that we still maintain those, you know, single minute SLAs to responding to folks. So folks will sort of be in, inbound lead taking mode for two hour blocks throughout the day. And then they will take whatever lead comes in that they've qualified and through to close. So it it requires more coordination, right? Because you're, you're doing multiple things. But what I always found with like the inbound SDR function is basically the AE winds up repeating that entire conversation when they get the opportunity. And it's just not a great feeling for the customer. So now that, you know, we're kind of also serving large Fortune 500 enterprises, we're starting to do that differently. But how we thought about it is the goal then of an inbound SDR is not really to qualify, but is to start gathering information that would help the AE make sure that first call is a very productive one rather than sort of run you through my 10 questions that I've been told to ask you. Mm -hmm. 
What does that new SDR look like then? So what are the kind of things that they're teeing up in the conversation for the AE? Yeah, it's really starting to get into, I think the number one question that we always ask is what caused you to reach out to Stripe? That The word cause is actually important there, right? Like there's momentum behind that word. And typically what we often see is it's because they want to facilitate something within their business model and they're getting stuck. So maybe they have been an e-com company, e-com retail, and now they want to get into a recurring subscription box of the month model, right? And that's hard. And so they want to do that. Maybe they've been US only. They want to expand into 20 countries in the next 12 months. That's hard. So that's what we focus more on is kind of like, what's the strategy? What's the broader business goal you're trying to achieve. Because the other thing I think we find too is, just my earlier point, Stripe now has seven different products. And some of the products we're bringing to market, like issuing, are relatively greenfield. And so sometimes we understand your business model. We actually can suggest things to you that you never would have come to us for. Yeah, I think there's so much empathy in that approach in the in the sense that you are thinking about what could the customer actually get out of that initial conversation instead of sort of feeling like they are being queried right and just basically filling out a form with a human right just to go back to that topic of moving up market one of the motions that comes into play is outbound Mm -hmm. but it can be really hard for a startup who's used to that inbound marketing approach to adjust to outbound. One of your principles at Stripe is efficiency is leverage. Mm -hmm. How does that work with an outbound sales model? Yes. So this was an interesting challenge for me. So to your point on efficiency is leverage, a lot of SaaS companies out there will spend upwards of 50% of revenue on sales and marketing. Suffice to say that that is not what we do at Stripe. (laughs) And I think to John and Patrick's credit, you know, despite the growth we've gone through, I've been reasonably conservative about how quickly they grow the company from a headcount perspective. And we are also a very engineering centric company. So to begin with off the top 50% of headcount is always going to be engineering. So that leaves the other half to divvy up between the rest of us. So I sort of knew out of the gates when we needed to invest in outbound that there was no way I could do the typical model of, you know, three to one, two to one, five to one, whatever ratio. We just were never going to get those heads. So what we've really invested deeply in out of the gates is a much more data-driven model. So I actually have two data scientists dedicated just to working with us on outbound and working on building what we're calling the company universe, which if we're successful, every company in the universe will be a line in this database. And then we will have used data from tons of different sources to have attributes on them that help us understand their propensity to buy and what we ought to be able to talk to them about. So that's sort of been our approach more. That's let us do some a little bit more scalable campaigns and also be very, very targeted. So to your point on switching also from like inbound to outbound, Yeah, that's like a totally different, that's like asking a right-handed person to all all of a sudden be (laughs) left-handed. So the other thing is just recognizing you've got to have a separate group of people to do it. And in some cases, from account executive perspective, we also started purposefully emphasizing candidates who had more outbound experience in their, their past. So you mentioned that ratio of five SCRs to one AE. It doesn't really work when you're thinking about efficiency. What does that ratio look like at Stripe and how is it working for you? Yeah, we're still figuring that out. So I sort of, I hate ratios because 
you shouldn't like, I think you can have a ratio once you know your model and then you just are kind of like, okay, we can reasonably scale this. But before that, I feel like it just like defaults you into thinking like everybody else. (laughs) So we're the same thing on, we have solutions architects or sales engineers, and there are a lot of typical ratios for those. And as we've set up that team also, I've been pretty clear of like, I'm purposefully not picking a ratio because what we're trying to figure out is what is optimal. And so on the, going back to the outbound front, we don't know the answer yet. It kind of comes back to how successful can we be in increasing the productivity of our team via our data-driven model. And if we're really successful with that, hopefully the ratio is quite high. If that takes longer to materialize, then maybe we start out with a lower ratio, but with very clear roadmap towards increasing that over time. I think that's that's really interesting because so often I think we like to apply these existing frameworks of like this ratio worked here. So we must then apply the same framework to a very different organization. To switch gears a little bit, we've talked about sort of new customer acquisition. What does your structure look like for the expansion side of your business? Because you mentioned that you now do have a distinct mm-hmm. account manager org. Yeah. We've gone through a number of iterations on this one too. So today it, it, it depends on segment. So you have different buying behaviors. So within the startup segment, again, so core to what Stripe does. So we actually have integrated the startup segment. So we have both new biz and existing biz under the same leader, separate people focused on newer existing, but single leader so that we have a really integrated strategy for that segment. So in that one, the role is focused both on, you know, upsell as well as retention and customer success activities. And we basically have been very focused on what we think are most likely to be the breakout startups of the future, over-investing in them before they're, you know, technically large enough, spending enough money to merit that, to also just help them if they get the best practices from us, does that make them more likely to become a Series B, Series C company because we, you know, helped facilitate that. So that's been one aspect. And then also a set of, you know, targeted campaigns where we sort of see behavior within an account and realize that they may benefit from either an optimization or a new product. In our our growth, which you can sort of think of as like series B through D companies segment, we've experimented with different models of folks doing just customer success and more commercial activities. And I think are likely to move to a model where those are actually integrated. We actually think that really aligns well with one of the things that's great about Stripe's commercial model is, is we make money when the customer makes money. So having those together is sort of, I think, works effectively. And then in our largest accounts, you know, the, the public companies, the enterprise ones, we're, we're figuring out exactly the right model there. You're doing super detailed payment optimization work with them. You know, if they're spending, they're out doing billions in payments, basis points matter. So we do a lot of detailed analyses on that front that are more customer success oriented. If you're doing a renewal, it's a very complicated process. That can be a six-month negotiation. So having someone who's expert in that um, is useful. You know, and then as we're selling products like Stripe Billing, you know, they might have homegrown or another subscription product in there, and that can be a complicated sale in and of itself. So what we're trying to do is like ensure that roles are focused enough that you can be expert, but not create such specialized roles that you wind up with 10 people in an account, which isn't a great customer experience and isn't very efficient. So looking towards the future, I think we've talked a lot about how you've evolved the 
team at Stripe today, but Stripe is, I think, now valued at something like $22.5 billion. And when you're growing that rapidly, I imagine that what worked really well one year or even one month ago can start to get strained with that growth. So what are the inputs that you're looking at? Like, what are the indicators that it's time to evolve the team? Yeah, the team, one of the things like I really value about Stripe is it's a very open and transparent company that really expects leadership from everywhere within a company. And so we really engage the teams very heavily in helping us actually understand that. So I would say like half of the evolutions we've done have been, I think, sort of management driven more about kind of, hey, I'm seeing a certain pattern here. Let's do a fair amount of analysis and understand the market opportunity and our position within it and then, you know, choose to to point the team in a certain direction. Example of that would be we're very focused right now on working with SaaS platforms. So Shopify, Squarespace, right? Those are SaaS companies, but e-commerce is a core part of what they do. So they work closely with Stripe. And so we're purposefully having more emphasis on that because it's an important segment of the market for us to pursue. In other cases, it's sort of been just seeing where either people aren't getting to the level of depth you want them to and realizing, wow, we have all these insanely smart people, but they're kind of not getting to depth. Clearly, there's too much breadth here, right? Or we've done different things too where we've checked in on like surveyed sort of like where are people spending time sometimes. And when you realize like one of the big changes we did was originally account executives were in charge of deploying their accounts as well. Sort of crazy when your your product's an API. But so that when it got to the point where they were spending over a third of their time deploying accounts, you were sort of like, wait a minute, that's not how we're going to grow as fast as possible time for a new role. But yeah, we're, I would say we're sort of on a pace where like there's been a major evolution sort of about every 12 months and typically about six months in, we're starting, we call it a dress rehearsal. (laughs) We start doing a dress rehearsal. So we have like an inkling that we think we want to make this change and we start experimenting and sort of putting some lightweight structures in place that would migrate us towards where we think we need to evolve. That way, when you finally announce, hey, we're moving segment lines or we're making this change, people are kind of like, oh, well, duh, (laughs) you know. (laughs) That idea of a dress rehearsal is so interesting because sometimes I think when we talk about evolution, we think about it just happening continuously. But with a dress rehearsal, there's not always, sometimes it can go exactly as the dress rehearsal went. And sometimes you got to refine. You got to refine. Is there an example that you could share with us? Because I think that'll really resonate with our listeners. Yeah. Okay. Dress rehearsal. One of the ones we're we're undertaking now is sort of shifting some of the more commercial elements back into sort of the customer success role. And so kind of what we've done is, and inevitably this happens, this will I'm sure resonate with a lot of people, which is like, you never really have enough headcount. So we have all sorts of very interesting accounts that we would like to invest in a lot more deeply and fewer people than, you know, we can do that. And so when you have the bifurcated customer success and kind of commercial role, um, you obviously have to put two people on account. So we're not, you know, we're like, eh, not going to staff some of these accounts with two people you know, you, one person, now get all of them. <laughs> and so, you know, our, I've sort of picked a couple folks that have a little bit more of a commercial orientation, so that's sort of a, more natural for them. And then, you know, I have a, a, a feedback loop with them to f- figure out how that's going, which one will help us uh, adjust if we're wrong, 
but two, I think then pave the way for when we want to roll that out to everybody else, them see, wow, these five people have been really successful at that. They've developed a playbook. I feel confident that I can do that as well. Great. So finally, to wrap us up, for sales leaders who are in that position of being at a really high growth company, are there any organizational principles that have really carried you through your career that you could share with them? This is one I have to remind myself of a lot. And I think it's been sort of woven throughout our conversation, but I'm naturally a, a, like a decider. <laughs> like if a lot of people I think have done like the color assessments and like I'm pretty hardcore red. And I think a lot of sales leaders may fall into that camp. And I do feel like I constantly have to remind myself to do the dress rehearsals, let things breathe and have enough of a learning period. Because when you ever, the thing with sales, right, is like if you get behind or a deal goes poorly, you always want to immediately shore that up and make sure it never happens again. So I feel like that's one is like organizational principle is, you know, make the change when it's quite clear to everyone involved that that is an obvious change. (laughs) That to me would be one of them. The other principle I think that I've learned a lot at Stripe um, that I would really encourage is actually, I think with one exception, all of our frontline managers are internal promotions. And um, so that's another principle I would say is like always look within before you look without. That was one of, it's honestly one of the reasons I left Google was you sort of like increasingly saw every single time there was a leadership opening, some person was getting hired for, you know, supposed industry expertise. So I think that would be the other one too, is just like constantly try to develop from within. And then my last one probably is always looking for like economies of scale. Like I try to operate by the like similar until proven different rather than different until proven similar, because then you're more likely to kind of be able to reuse stuff and be more efficient um, where you can be. This has been such an interesting conversation. I wish we could keep going, (laughs) Um, but thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.